five days away from the New Jersey primary election. The race for governor of New Jersey took another turn this week. It seems to take one every week. I'll talk more about that later. But with 192 days before the general election, it just doesn't seem like the usual gubernatorial campaign season. For me, it's the 13th campaign for governor of New Jersey that I've watched. This week, somebody told me that 2021, as a campaign cycle, it just seems to be a little bit more sluggish than usual. And and when I thought about it, it it's true. Maybe it is. Maybe it is what everybody's been going through over the last year in dealing with COVID and the the effects of uh, the pandemic. Maybe people are still fatigued over last year's presidential election, but. Typically at this point in April, New Jersey politicos speak of nothing else but gubernatorial politics. This year, there's noticeably less energy. And and I'll come back to the race for governor in a few minutes. Coming up at 420, I'll speak with Congressman Frank Pallone. He is the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. He is one of the most powerful people on Capitol Hill. And this week... Chairman Pallone introduced legislation that would allow the federal government to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. It's a measure that is aimed at lowering profits for big pharma companies and reducing the cost to the consumer. Pallone's committee has jurisdiction over the pharmaceutical industry and the cost of prescription drugs. It's a huge issue, and you will not want to miss what Frank Pallone has to say. And coming up at 435, I'll talk about the 2024 presidential election with one of my favorite people in the world, one of the smartest people I know, James Pendle, a political reporter for the Boston Globe and probably the nation's predominant expert on New Hampshire presidential primaries. This week... Axios reported that former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is seriously considering a bid for president in 2024. So I'll ask James Pindle about Christie's chances, about his path to the presidency, and about other candidates who might compete in the first in the nation New Hampshire primary. I promise you, you will not want to miss that. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Part of my job as a journalist is to not be surprised, or at the very least not act surprised when something happens that maybe I ought to have known about in advance. Uh, At the very least, I'm supposed to understand why something happened. So this one has me completely baffled. On Friday, President Biden announced his intention to nominate Sue Fulton, as his assistant secretary of defense for manpower and reserve affairs. Now, for those of you who don't know who Sue Fulton is, let me remind you, for the last three years, Fulton has run the New Jersey Motor Vehicles Commission, an agency that has been an absolute disaster. COVID shut down the DMV. Uh, Yeah, I still call it that. I can't get used to saying Motor Vehicles Commission. Changing the name doesn't make the place any better. But when the DMV reopened last summer, it was a mess. People were lining up in the middle of the night. They waited online for hours and hours, sometimes leaving completely unsatisfied. Politicians from both parties blamed Sue Fulton, who couldn't seem to manage the place. And nearly a year later, things have gotten a little better, but it's not like anyone. Democrats or Republicans are calling Sue Fulton a superstar. 
And that's why her promotion to a big job at the Pentagon is is such a head scratcher. Is this what it means by failing up? Maybe. Uh, and, and to be fair, Fulton's a West Point graduate. She's an Army veteran. I thank her for her service. But something is off here. And I spoke to a few people on Friday who said maybe Joe Biden's doing a favor for Phil Murphy, taking Sue Fulton off his hands in an election year. But but I can't imagine that's really the case, not for a big job at the Pentagon. There are lots of places in the federal government that she could have been parked if they needed to get her out. So I'm missing something. Nobody roots for the failure of our national defense. I certainly am not. I'm truly hoping that Sue Fulton can do a better job at the Pentagon than she did in New Jersey. And and my fingers are crossed that President Biden knows what he's doing here. Because if the last three years are at all an indication of Fulton's ability to manage a government agency, uh, our soldiers could be finding themselves waiting in long, long lines to get into their tanks. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And this next story is strange, even for Jersey. On Friday, Jason Kreitschu, he is a self-proclaimed progressive Democrat. He was challenging an incumbent in a state Senate primary, Senator Joe Cryan, and he dropped out of the race after finally admitting that he lied about his resume. Uh, This was a New Jersey Globe exclusive, and here's what's happened. Kreitschu had said, and he said it over and over, that he was a science instructor at Kane University. But Kane University told me he didn't work there, that he hadn't worked there in almost four years. So I called Kreitschu, and I asked him, what was this all about? We spoke three times on Wednesday, And each time he dug himself into a deeper hole. He made up this elaborate tale that he teaches principles of microbiology on Mondays and Wednesdays at 8, 10 a.m. But the the university said it wasn't true. And I I asked Kreitschu for something, I mean anything, that would show that he was telling the truth. And he sent me screenshots of his online bank statement, but he sent me one that was several years old. So I asked him if he had something, a college ID. He told me there was a mix-up at the college, so we never got one. I asked him if he had a, a syllabus, a work colleague that I could speak with. He couldn't come up with anything better than, uh, hey, my Internet's not working now. I can't get anything to you. But by Friday, the ceiling fell in on his candidacy. He, he admitted that he had lied about his employment history, and he, he dropped out of the race. So did all of his running mates. And they said they didn't know Kreitschup was lying. I absolutely believe them. Uh, a state assembly candidate running on his slate, Aisa Heath, put out a brutally honest statement. She said this campaign was supposed to be run on the progressive principles of transparency, truth, and accountability. And she said because of Jason's actions, we can no longer say that. I can no longer in good faith continue to run knowing that so much trust was broken. But the ballots for this primary in June, they've already been printed. It is too late to remove his name. Uh, and the names of the people on his slate will, will all be there. So it's going to be up to the media to tell voters what happened. And, and let me say this about Jason Kreitschew. As the person he lied to repeatedly this week, he did the right thing finally telling the truth. I, I at least applaud him for that. People make mistakes. And at least Kreitschew owned up to it. He took 
responsibility, personal responsibility for what he did. He apologized. That is a good start. Uh, this is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Uh, there was an important development in the race for governor this week. Uh, it's, it's not one that got a lot of attention, but it's important. Phil Rizzo, a Hudson County pastor, He's seeking the Republican nomination for governor, and he saw his bid for matching funds get rejected by the state for the second time. And for those of you who don't know this, New Jersey has public financing for gubernatorial campaigns. If you raise a little under $500,000, the state matches your contribution. They they give a candidate about $2 for every dollar raised, less a, a deductible of about 150000 But there are rules, and the Election Law Enforcement Commission found that Rizzo didn't follow them. And for Rizzo, that's a loss of at least $800,000 in matching funds, maybe more, depending on what he raises Uh Rizzo had emerged late from the right. For a little while, it looked like there was this Rizzo-mania thing going on, that he might be suddenly a a real challenger to Jack Cittarelli. But without the money, without a seat at the table in two Republican gubernatorial debates, Rizzo-mania may be fizzling out. Cittarelli has the backing of all 21 uh, county Republican organizations. He's got an enormous fundraising advantage. He's received about $3 million in public funds. And, and if Rizzo doesn't have the money to compete, and now it looks like he won't, it becomes exponentially more difficult to see a path for him in the Republican primary. Uh, this, too, is noteworthy. Governor Murphy is unopposed for the Republican Democratic nomination. He he easily qualified for matching funds. He received four point six million. He's limited to spending seven point two million in the primary. Uh, that's a big advantage when you're unopposed as he's setting up his election bid. Uh, and, and this is also you know in, important is that is that Phil Murphy has not yet appointed a Republican to the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission. That vacancy has existed for his entire term in office. Uh, I have a feeling that might get sorted out soon. Uh, we will be back with the, one of the most influential members of Congress, New Jersey's Frank Pallone, chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. I'll ask him about his bill to lower prescription drug prices. Uh, and at 435, I'll be joined by New Jersey, by, I'm sorry, Boston Globe political reporter James Pendle to talk about former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's path to running for president in 24. Uh, And who else is on the horizon as Republicans look for a chance to regain the White House? This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org 
or dial 211. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Frank Pallone has represented New Jersey in Congress since 1988. He's one of the most influential leaders on Capitol Hill as chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Chairman Pallone, welcome. Thank you, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. And uh, this week you introduced a major piece of legislation. It would allow the federal government to negotiate fair prescription drug prices with pharmaceutical companies. What exactly does your plan do? Well, essentially it does what most other uh, developed countries do, which is it allows the secretary, in this case of Health and Human Services, well, it doesn't allow, it mandates that the secretary negotiate prices for the most uh, for the drugs that you know, have a higher highest prices or the most utilized uh, in order to bring down the price of drugs. And we estimate that this will would see price reductions of up as much as 55 percent for most for what's the most common drugs. Uh, it's you know, this is what's done in every other country in the world that's you know, developed. I mean, we're modeling it in many ways after uh, what's done in Canada, what's done in France, Germany, Japan, Australia. And the price that's negotiated can't be more than 120% of the price for those six other countries that I just mentioned to you. And how much would price negotiation provisions save the federal government? How much would it save Medicare? Well, we estimate probably about uh, half a trillion dollars, like maybe uh, 500 uh, billion dollars but you keep in mind david that we're not just doing this for medicare we're doing this across the board so it would be applied to you know people uh who have insurance or you know buying drugs across the counter it's all included it's not just medicare but i know the focus has been on medicare and does does the reintroduction introduction of this bill uh i i know a similar bill passed the house last last session let me ask this first what happened when this bill got to the Senate? Well, as you know, the Senate was Republican then, and so they just basically weren't interested. I mean, the Republicans have made it quite clear uh, that they are not interested in having negotiated prices. They say they want to reduce prices, but they don't want the federal government to negotiate. Now, interestingly enough, President Trump was in favor of this, as is President Biden. Uh, but now with the Senate, you know, even though it's 50-50, the, the vice president breaks the tie, you know, we think that we can get this through uh, and get some Republican support as well. Um, But the most important thing, uh, to be perfectly honest, is that we've got to do something to to lower drug prices, because increasingly, uh, you know, and and it's focused a lot during the pandemic that the drug companies keep raising their prices and there's no way, there's nothing to stop them. The other thing that's in this, David, is that if the price... um, if the drug company price increases on an annual basis more than inflation, then they have to give a rebate back to the federal government as well under Medicare. So it also has that factor as well. And it also has uh, uh, that says that no senior would have to pay more than two thousand dollars out of pocket for Medicare in a given year. So we're trying to get at, um, you know, uh, have have reductions in prices in various ways. But the most important part is the negotiation, David. And, and I'm speaking with House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Frank Pallone. Cong- Congressman, does, does your reintroduction of this bill mean that 
President Biden's decided not to include negotiation of drug prices in the family's first package? No, we fully expect that it will be. You understand that when we talk about a family's first package, what, you know, the, the, the president is going to make certain recommendations. I know that he continues to be in favor of this. I mean, he said it repeatedly, and I'm sure he's going to say it again. Uh, but, you know, we fully intend to include it in this next um, jobs or stimulus package. I mean, some people call it the infrastructure bill. I call it the jobs bill. But the next, uh, the next bill that we're going to do, uh, you know, we're going to include this. And the, the polling that I've seen shows that it's got wide bipartisan support. The, the Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, want their drug prices reduced also. What, if that's the case, why is there opposition to this among Republicans in the House? Well, I think a lot of it is just the idea that they, you know, ideologically don't believe uh, that the government should get involved. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, look, I can't speculate there. You know, one could say it's because of uh, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. But I also think that it's an ideological thing. They don't think the government should, you know, it's the idea of a laissez-faire marketplace. You know, you charge whatever you want. But I think that uh, that's that can't continue because. What's happening, David, is that all these other countries in the world are negotiating the prices and then they make the drug companies make up the difference by increasing prices here in the United States. And it's just not fair. You know, I look at this very practically, not from an ideological perspective. And uh, Congressman Polona, I mean, uh, you know this better than I do. The pharmaceutical industry is a, a extraordinary component of New Jersey's economy. Uh, uh, correct me if I get my numbers wrong. I think it's close to 15 percent of the state's GDP. It, it, it directly, indirectly affects about 400,000 jobs. If, if you reduce the profits of the pharmaceutical industry, will that hurt New Jersey? I don't believe so, because I do believe that they are making more than enough money to continue to innovate and and come up with new drugs. And I mean, if you were to take that position, which is that, you know, they should be able to charge whatever they want because that creates more jobs. Well, yeah. But what happens to all these people that can't afford the drugs? They they don't get the drugs. You know, you have people cutting their pills in half Um, at, at some point. The system is not going to be sustainable if more and more people uh, can't afford the drugs. And, and you know, David, what's happening is when you talk about the healthcare system, 20 years ago, prescription drugs were not as big a bite of your, of your costs as an individual for healthcare as they are now. In other words, increasingly, because of we rely more and more on drugs and, and that, you know, you pay a larger percent of your healthcare costs because of prescription drugs. And so it just at some point it becomes unsustainable. I mean, they, the drug companies can say, well, we need to make money. Of course they need to make money. But remember, when you negotiate prices, you're taking into consideration that they have to have a profit margin. It's just a question of how much. And this week, Chairman, the, the West Virginia legislature proposed or legislators in West Virginia, uh, they're seek, they introduced a bill that would require drug discounts or rebates that are negotiated by the insurance companies, that they be passed on directly to the patients without benefit managers uh, taking part in that saving. Should, should New Jersey, should other states do the same thing as in, 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 on, a, on a parallel track to what you're doing at the federal level? 
Well, I think that this is something that needs to be done at the federal level because I don't. I think that that's the only way that you can really bargain effectively. In other words, if you since the federal government, you know, has the Medicare program and it's and it's so many people and so much money involved, they're going to be much more effective at negotiation and, and you're using a hammer, if you will, than uh, than individual states, many of which are small and may not really have much of an ability to bargain. And, and I'm speaking with House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Frank Pallone. Congressman, it would be probably malpractice on my part without asking you an environmental question since since that's been your your signature issue since you ran for Long Branch Councilman 39 years ago. Uh, so this this week, you know, this week you you reintroduced a bill that would require polluters to pay for Superfund cleanup, not taxpayers. Yeah. Can this bill become law now that it's a Democratic House and Senate and a Democrat in the White House? Well, again, this is something that uh, President Biden says that he wants to do. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to include it in this jobs bill that comes forward in the same way that we're going to include this negotiated price provision. And he supports it. So, yeah, we're going to try to do it, and I think it can be done. And these are issues you've been working on. You know, I, I mean, I, I said you did. You talked about the environment when you ran for, for council, but you've, you've seriously been on issues like prescription drugs and environmental cleanup for, for a long time. Is, is, is this something that you, have you just grown accustomed to, to being disappointed in Washington or, or are you no, finally no, at a point where I'm not disappointed. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, we've accomplished a lot. You know, we, we did the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare we covered so many people. We've expanded programs for kids for health care. You know, we've uh, ended the dumping off the coast. I mean, most of what I talked about when I first ran, we've accomplished and, you know, the Superfund, as you know, existed. I mean, it was actually put, it was actually a bill, if I'm not mistaken, that was originally sponsored by Senator Lautenberg and, um, and Jim Florio when he was a congressman right. on my committee. And then it was let lapse when Newt Gingrich became speaker. Uh, and we haven't had it for the last 20 years, but you know, it, 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 we were just basically bringing it back. I mean, this is something that was always in, uh, you know, New Jersey was always in the forefront because we have more Superfund sites in any other state, and it's important to our state, uh, but it's important to the country as well. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> and you are, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say this, we're, we're just about out of time, but I, I mean, I've been watching your career for, for all this time. You are, you are like the Energizer buddy. I mean, you do, you do not stop. And, uh, you know, and I, and, and, uh, I, I guess that 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 that's an example as to why you've you've accumulated these huge margins when you run for re-election. Uh, well, thank you, David. <laughs> uh, the other thing maybe we should say about the Superfund is remember that if you don't have this uh, tax on the petroleum and chemical industry, then what happens is there aren't as many sites cleaned up, and the taxpayers through your income tax end up paying for it, which again isn't really fair because. They haven't caused the pollution, so why should they be the ones that, you know, why should the taxpayers, the little guy, pay for it? It's just not fair. So, Understood. Thank you again. Well, Congressman Pallone, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. 
You too. Take care, David. Thank you. And, and I'll be right back to speak with James Pindle, Boston Globe political reporter, about the 2024 presidential race. And, and I'm going to ask him about Chris Christie's path to the presidency. So you won't want to miss that. This is David Wildstein, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I always value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic... I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Welcome back, everybody. James Pindle is is one of the best and, and smartest political reporters in the nation. And, and from his perch at the Boston Globe, he's, he's also the predominant expert on New Hampshire presidential primaries. James, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And then let me say this first. I've been I've been watching your career since 2002 when you you first started covering uh, presidential candidates visiting New Hampshire. So 24 will be your your sixth presidential primary there. Uh, it seems to me every four years you seem to be as excited as you always have about about New Hampshire as the first in the nation state. That's right, and there was a cycle of Iowa before that, as you know. Uh, I think right now I'm very excited, but I'm also very confused uh, about what exactly this primary calendar will look like. It feels like we uh, may have some things that are the same in terms of how this race will actually play out logistically in 2024. But right now people are asking some very big questions, and it feels like there's almost a generational shift right now. And. What's what will be the deadline? When will this this calendar be decided to determine if if Iowa is going to go first and New Hampshire is going to go uh, go first as a primary? Yeah, I apologize for how wonky this conversation already got for our listeners. Um, but yeah, you know, this is a state by state process, and uh, typically, uh, not typically, but sometimes this has gone down to a couple of months before the primary is actually held to when we really know. What exactly is going to happen in terms of the lineup of all 50 states? It does seem, however, that while the Democrats really do want big change and big reform, particularly after the colossal fail in the Iowa caucuses in 2020, Republicans are moving on like nothing happened. It's still Iowa. It's still New Hampshire. There's, that's where all the visits are happening, virtual or actually in person. Uh, so it does seem to be a pretty traditional calendar. But what happens after those two states? in South Carolina is a wide open question. Will there be another super duper Tuesday, for example? I, I have no idea. And that really does impact 
uh, the conversation later on for Chris Christie. And well, let's talk about Chris Christie. Axios reported uh, this week that Christie is seriously considering. That's, I guess, an upgrade from considering. It's now seriously considering uh, <laughs> running for president again. Is 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 there a path to Christie winning the Republican nomination? Uh, that's really tough. It's a really tough path. Let me say this also: it's a really tough path for everyone. I'm not hedging that, but let's look at let's, let's look at this in context. Um, number one, they, everyone's going to run for president. So is Chris Christie going to like pull the trigger and run? I assume he will. Uh, you know, in, two, in 2016 when he ran, there were 17 Republicans running for president. Last time there were 23 Democrats running for president. And the incentives in the system politically argue that you should run for president. Andrew Yang is the front runner for <laughs> New York City mayor because he went from some dude uh, uh, to running for president, and that was the launch pad to put him in the position he is in now. And I think other people see that. Pete Buttigieg is also another sitting example of that, of the, well, why not run? So will Chris Christie run? Probably, along with 20-some other Republicans running. The question then becomes, all right, uh, where does he fit? What is the path? And you do see if there's not a Trump, and that's the first premise, is Trump running or not? I think a lot of us are working with the premise that he's not. But let's just, if you disagree, then disagree. But let's play this out. Because if he, Trump's in, I think Christie, you see, there's, I don't know what he does there. I mean, I can see how he runs anyway. And I know they suggested he runs anyway. Uh, but the most likely scenario is that Trump does not run. Then you have two camps, and there's no shades of gray. You're either pro-Trump, and you are the Trump legacy. Or you are not Trump. <laughs> Those are the two contenders. And Chris is so in between that. And I don't know what that means for him. If it was a campaign of, say, four people, five people, six candidates on a stage, then there's some room for some gradient and some bridge builder. You see that in races for governor, races for Congress. But when there's 20-something people running, I mean, I don't know how exactly that works. You have to run to either one of those camps. And a Chris Christie right now, I'm not even sure he knows what exact camp he would be in. He kind of fluctuates day by day. And so in 2016, you, you covered that race. He put all his eggs into New Hampshire. He skipped Iowa. He, he went right to New Hampshire. He had the endorsement of the, the union leader. He had some high-level Republican insiders. And, and he finished sixth. He got 7% of the vote, no right. delegates. But So my question is, is, specifically in New Hampshire, does he start out with that base, or does a candidate have to start over when they begin to put together activists and support? That's such a fascinating question. You're, you're really smart to ask it because typically the answer here would be, yeah, he does start with a base. He does start with, with, with relationships. And look, he does have relationships. It's just that Donald Trump has so reorganized the Republican Party that I'm not sure those relationships automatically mean anything to the, way that, to the degree that they would have meant if Donald Trump had not run and had not reorganized the party, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, it so does. He has does. people on speed dial. He has cell phone numbers. But they aren't looking at Chris Christie, this person who was in New Jersey, and I liked him, and we got along, and I endorsed him. They are looking at a completely different political matrix when they're trying to figure out who they're going to support, and that includes other people. 
And I'm speaking with James Pindle, a political reporter for the Boston Globe. If 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 Donald Trump does run, uh, if he does get in this race, is is there a lot of drama in in New Hampshire? Probably not. Um, but if I were Chris Christie, I would actually like Donald Trump to get in. It, it really clears out the path. I mean, how many people are actually going to run against Donald Trump? Two, three, four? That's a heck of a lot better odds than, you know, 26 people. If I'm Chris Christie, I'm not only concerned And I'm about so glad you're not, by the way. I'm so glad you're not. But, <laughs> but if, I, if I were, I, I would be concerned about the ideological divide that we talked about before and sitting in the middle. And then I'd be concerned about the implications of that. I'm a former governor somewhere in the middle. How am I going to raise any money? You know, Chris Christie did not have the low-dollar-digit fundraising base that even Matt Gates has with all of his problems. He was not in that modern level of politics in terms of structurally where he was. He was not in Congress or the Senate, which relies on this. And he's been out of politics now. His email list is not as robust as Christie knows at this point. And so I don't know how he raises big Wall Street money since he's out of the game. I don't know how this works. And if he can't raise the money, he's not viable. I think we have to begin with the premise of, you remember in 2016 when they had the varsity stage, you know, the top 10 yes. candidates at the JD stage? Um, you know, the Democrats did something different in 2020. You had to qualify with all these certain ways. But right now, I think it's a 50-50 shot as to whether or not Chris Christie makes the varsity stage. And I think if he's being realistic, he needs to understand that and do something about it. But look, I have to give him credit, uh, which is, you know, for a former governor who's been out of the game, he's kept himself somewhat relevant. I'm not going to call him relevant. I'm going to call him he's a qualifier, somewhat relevant. He's interesting on television, but that's basically all he is now. And there's no reason why someone has to give him 15 bucks in an email contribution. And even what is I don't even know what his pitch is. And let's shift to the Democratic side also, because because yeah. it shouldn't go without a discussion. Joe Biden will be 82 in the next election. I know it's way too early to say if he'll run for a second term. But but let's just say for a second he doesn't. Is is Vice President Harris the clear favorite to win the Democratic primary in New Hampshire? Well, then we have to have an honest question about whether there will be a New Hampshire primary that's first in the matters. I mean, New Hampshire will have a first primary. The question is whether candidates like Kamala Harris will even bother to show up. Um, and that, there's some big existential questions on that. You know, she has never been a big fan of New Hampshire. One of her first trips, she called questions about whether New Hampshire should be first actually racist to the reporters. Um, she was in New Hampshire, however, uh, on Friday, which was kind of a an interesting point, it was the first time she had been in the state since she had dropped out. And in fact, even months before that, since September of 2019. Um, so it was an important moment for New Hampshire that she showed up. Is she the automatic front runner? She is the automatic front runner. What I'm curious about, and I think what the 2022 elections will show us, is how much progressive energy there is. It's been pretty much bottled up. You know, typically, when you are the party out of power, that's the one that has these epic primary fights. You saw it in 2010 with the establishment and Tea Party. I think we're going to see that, no question, with Trump and non-Trump on the Republican side in key primaries. But I think we're also going to find on the progressive left, I mean, this is a situation where they are driving the party's message. They are driving the party. 
Um, Bernie Sanders won, you know, three out of the four early states. Um, and, and, and progressives feel like they held their, you know, they, they, they bit their tongue during the, during the general election. And now I feel like they could be really speaking up. And if they do, then there will be a leader for that. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be AOC. Um, it could be a, obviously a, a sitting senator. It could be Elizabeth Warren if if, um, if it's Kamala Harris. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but I do see a strong progressive challenge. Well, look, it may only go down like Bill Bradley and Al Gore, uh, but I do see that we could easily have a, a, a strong primary challenge if there's no Joe Biden. But Kamala Harris obviously is setting herself up. And where where is the, the – Where's the timing on this by, you know, you get through the midterms in 22. At, at what point does this field need to be settled out? Uh, the, the field, whether or not Joe Biden needs to make a decision or the field. Yes. The yeah. When do people really have to, when would Chris Christie have to make a final decision by, if he's going to be a serious oh, Chris contender? Christie is so, Chris Christie is so out of the game. I think he's going to have to make it. And that's not even a snarky comment. He just, he is. I think he'd have to make a decision. Um, uh, pretty much one week after the midterm elections. Uh, we did see a little bit of things slowing down in, the 20, in 2020. Elizabeth Warren was the first person to announce like a super PAC, and she did it on New Year's Eve of the midterm year, heading into uh, 2019. She did it New Year's Eve 2018. I just think that this time, on, for, for particularly those who have been out of the game, they're going to have to get in November, December of uh, 2022. So it's going to be uh, honest before we know it. James Pendle, Boston Globe political reporter. Thank you for joining me today. There, I mean, there, there are few people in the world I'd rather speak with more about national politics than you. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll be back uh, to talk about a surprising development this week in New Jersey. Again, former New Jersey Lieutenant Governor Kim Guadano. She, she loses her job at a food bank. It's a great Jersey story. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. A mere flip of 151,764 votes, and Kim Guadana would have been the governor of New Jersey. She'd have been managing the state's response to a global pandemic. And instead, after losing to Phil Murphy four years ago, the, the former lieutenant governor of the state got a job. Uh, she got a job running a, a major food bank operation in Monmouth and Ocean Counties. And this week, 
fulfill uh that is that is the the food bank uh decided to change direction and she lost her job there here's what happened uh and this again a jersey story guadano faced some heavy criticism last month for failing to apply for COVID-19 relief funding that was administered by Monmouth County under the CARES Act. And, and we all have to remember that Guadano comes from Monmouth County. She was uh, the sheriff there before she became lieutenant governor. She's got a, uh, a lot of friends and politics there, but the relationship has changed. The circumstances have changed. And that decision, that criticism followed the former lieutenant governor's letter that chastised the Republican-controlled Board of Commissioners for not sending stimulus funding to the nonprofit she was running. Now, these strained relationships between Guadano and the county elected officials, it wound up leaving some of the board members of this nonprofit, this very good nonprofit, they became concerned that Guadano might cause them to lose future county funding, especially after Monmouth County obtains the, the additional money that comes from Joe Biden's trillion COVID relief package. So the board members have got frustrated, and they got frustrated with Guadano's partisan political activity, and and they do a lot of great work there. They they serve about 215,000 food insecure people. That's up 58% for where they were before the pandemic, and they decided they don't want to let the future of their organization uh, uh, become part of of partisan politics, and and Kim Guadano got let go. I, I think that's I think that's an amazing story for somebody who four years ago was was viewed as a possible future governor of the state. Uh, last week, this week, uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale died at 93. Mondale appeared on the ballot in New Jersey exactly four times in his career, twice as Jimmy Carter's running mate and as a candidate for the presidency in 1984, in the primary and in the general. Uh, he lost three of those races in New Jersey. But in 1984, the New Jersey presidential primary was a big, big win for him. Mondale was battling Gary Hart for the Democratic nomination. And and while he had a, a lead in the delegate count, the race wasn't over going into the final day of the presidential primary season. Uh, California and New Jersey were the biggest delegate prizes on that day. There were there were primaries in, in New Mexico and South Dakota and West Virginia. Gary Hart made a huge gaffe while campaigning in California. He he told an audience that his wife would remain in California while he headed to seek votes in New Jersey. And what he said is, the good news for her is that she campaigns in California while I campaign in New Jersey. And and then he made things worse. He said he said that uh, that when Lee Hart uh, was holding a koala bear in California uh, that he he said, I won't tell you what I got to hold. And he said, I held samples from a toxic waste dump in New Jersey. Uh, that didn't go over well in, Jer- in Jersey. Mondale won the state by, I guess, over 100,000 votes, uh, 45%, 30% he carried. He carried uh, 
20 of the 21 counties, and, and it was an extraordinary win for him. Uh, this is David Wildson, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Uh, my friend Jeff Tittle, who is retiring this year as state director of the New Jersey Sierra Club, he worked for Mondale's presidential campaign. He was on the campaign staff in Iowa in other states. And, and he shared with me a very touching email that Vice President Mondale sent out. And I, and I want to read it to everybody. Dear team, well, my time has come. I'm eager to rejoin Joan and Eleanor. Before I go, I want to let you know how much you mean to me. Never has a public servant had a better group of people working at their side. Together, we have accomplished so much, and and I know you will keep up the good fight. Joe in the White House certainly helps. I always knew it would be okay if I arrived someplace and was greeted by one of you. My best to all of you, Fritz. It was just such an incredibly, incredibly classy way to... Uh, uh, to, to close what is an extraordinary career. Flags in New Jersey are being flown at half uh, staff in, in memory of, of the former vice president. And, and in another bizarre story, uh, one that, that, that has, has been around New Jersey now for, uh, for most of the last month, uh, there's a shadowy perennial candidate named Lisa McCormick. If you remind everybody she got, she got thrown off the ballot for, uh, Filing fraudulent petitions, a judge found that not one of the signatures on her petition as a candidate for governor was uh, was valid. Uh, now things are getting a little worse. Uh, uh, the New Jersey Globe reported that there's summonses uh, that have been filed against Devine, uh, James Devine, her uh, her controversial life partner, and against Lisa McCormick for trespassing. Uh, there's a woman that I spoke to uh, where McCormick and Devine have been staying at her home in West Amwell. Uh, she says Devine harassed her. So it, between the two of them, it's a total of 10 complaints. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the details you can read about on the New Jersey Globe, but but the bottom line here is is this story, this story of shadowy perennial candidate Lisa McCormick is not yet over. And, and before I sign off, I want to remind you that the New Jersey Globe will host a debate in the closely watched Democratic primary for state Senate in Bergen County in the 37th District. Uh, it's between Valerie Veneri Huddle and Gordon Johnson. It is the best race of this primary season by far and the two candidates will join me on sunday march 2nd at 9 p.m you can watch on the new jersey globe website uh, please don't miss it it's it, i think it's going to be an extraordinary debate between two people that have served side by side in the state assembly in the same party uh for the last 16 years they're now running for loretta weinberg's state senate seat uh, this is david wildstein i'm the editor of the new jersey globe thank you kevin sanders thank you everybody for listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This Saturday at 5 p.m., it's Threads with the voice of fashion for over 30 years, Joseph Abood. What are the new trends? Not what are the new fads. What are the new trends? Because men buy clothes differently than women. And it's more than just talking about fashion. Great information, how to wear your clothes, how to buy your clothes. Joe talks to the legends of 7th Avenue to get you behind the scenes and seams. Threads with legendary designer Joseph Abood. Style is forever. Every Saturday at 
5 p.m. right before Cousin Brucie on 77 WABC.